I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our opening song is Sophisticated Lady, the Duke Ellington jazz standard here performed by Ella Fitzgerald, speaking of disillusionment and loss. There's plenty of that to go around in the life of Eleanor Roosevelt and her circle of family and friends. Our show today is Eleanor in Love and Politics. In the first part of the show, we'll be joined by Susan Quinn. We'll discuss her biography of love and friendship, Eleanor and Hick, the love affair that shaped a first lady. That first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, once called first lady of the world, has also been christened the first lady of gay rights. And in Quinn's new book, we're introduced to the woman who was likely Roosevelt's first and deepest love, the journalist and writer, Lorena Hickok. But we'll also hear about her love for Joe Lash and David Gurevich, the latter of whom Eleanor Roosevelt wrote or telephoned every day for the last 10 years of her life. Part two of the show uh, will take us to historian Jane Marcellus to ask about Eleanor Roosevelt's first book, the 1933 It's Up to the Women, a work that Marcellus claims is a counterstatement to the propaganda project instigated by Edward Bernays for the presidential campaign of Franklin Roosevelt, rolled out in the February 1932 Ladies' Home Journal. What was up to the women, according to the father of propaganda and public relations, to save democracy via patriotic shopping, naturally? We'll begin with a love affair that shaped a first lady. Our guest is author Susan Quinn. She's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, excuse me, The New York Times Magazine, and The Boston Globe Magazine, among others. She's the author of several books, among them Furious Improvisation, how the WPA and a cast of thousands made high art of the desperate times, and Marie Curie, A Life. Her new book, Eleanor and Hick, was published by Penguin Press last September. Welcome to Interchange, Susan Quinn. Oh, thank you, Doug. Glad to be here. Uh, perhaps uh, we should acknowledge in some, uh, some of the ways that we're in the midst of a time not unlike that of the early 20th century. We have a kind of new Gilded Age, a deepening and widening of the gap between the haves and have-nots. We have a resurgence of white nationalism and fascism. And in the middle of this, we can turn to your book about the love life of Eleanor Roosevelt. This is Roosevelt's book, to be sure, but as your subtitle suggests, Lorena Hickok seems to have prompted Roosevelt to a fuller self. Maybe we can start with the simple question, right? Who was Lorena Hickok? Lorena Hickok was a very successful reporter for the Associated Press. Everybody called her Hick. And Hick uh, came from great poverty and difficulty, had a childhood in South Dakota where she was um, uh, had to deal with an abusive father. She left her home at 13 after her mother died and worked as a maid in other people's houses, barely made it through high school. But somehow, miraculously, just because of her own, I think, intelligence and her passion for reading and learning, 
um, got a newspaper job at the Minneapolis Tribune, and then eventually went to the Associated Press and became a top reporter there, one of the few women who actually covered the news, things like the Lindbergh kidnapping, for instance. Uh, and uh, she was a, a tough, hard-drinking uh, reporter um, and uh, a very, very unlikely um, partner for Eleanor Roosevelt, who was very subdued and ladylike. Uh, and she was a lesbian. She had already, before she met Eleanor, had a long-term love affair with another woman um, and was assigned to cover Eleanor Roosevelt in 1932 during the first uh, Roosevelt presidential campaign. Wasn't even sure she wanted to do that job because she definitely didn't want to get back onto the ladies' page. She wanted to cover real news. But once she met Eleanor Roosevelt, she realized that Eleanor Roosevelt was no ordinary first lady, and uh, she actually wired her boss and said, uh, the dame has uh, tremendous dignity. She's a person. Uh, and her boss said, she's all yours, Hickok. Enjoy it. And so Hickok did, <laughs> again, covering Eleanor full-time, uh, day and night. And uh, increasingly, um, as Eleanor heard her story her uh, of hardship, um, uh, she grew more and more open uh, and shared more and more with Lorena. And before FDR was elected president in November, they had really they had fallen in love. Hmm. Um, so, and uh, that's that's my that's my the beginning anyway of my story. <laughs> right. Uh, so the the point uh, you made there also about uh, uh, Hick not wanting to cover a first lady was Hick not wanting to cover. Uh, the idea of the first lady that had been already sort of created in the White House, right? The first lady was was not news. The first lady was not politics. Right. The first lady was on the women's page, and it was all about what she was wearing. Uh, and uh, Hick had done that, been there, done that mm-hmm. many years before, both in Milwaukee and Minneapolis. And she knew very, very well that that was not what she wanted, and mm-hmm. she didn't want to go back there. Uh, so and so, they were both kind of in the, a little bit wary in the beginning about each other. Hick didn't want to cover, didn't want to cover first lady stuff, and Eleanor had been raised to feel that she shouldn't talk to any reporters because a lady um, should not be in the newspapers right. at the time of her coming out and her marriage. Um, so uh, she it took her a while to warm up, but uh, then out of that, as I say, they forged this really powerful relationship, which, and the reason my book is called The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady is because really Eleanor did not want the first lady job at all. She had a whole independent life in New York politics. She was writing and um, talking, uh, campaigning. She was teaching school. She had a whole circle of women friends, uh, many of them actually lesbian couples who were very involved in the early days of democratic politics. So she had a world, and she uh, she and Franklin had agreed to pretty much live side by side, but live separate lives. And coming back to Washington involved, well, me- many memories that she didn't want to go back to, mm-hmm. but also involved being, as she said, being Mrs. R yeah, right. on this ceremonial role. 
which she did not want to do. Well, let's talk a little bit about that particular yeah. aspect. Yeah. Uh, so, so you come to the book, and you come to the book in what is um, uh, one assumes a, a, a kind of fresh start for Eleanor Roosevelt, or a second stage of life, or a new a new life altogether. And and what uh, what struck me reading it, uh, not knowing a whole lot about the period or Eleanor Roosevelt, the period before the presidency as well, to, to understand that they had six children um, before this time, that she, like there had been a full life already and a, and a continuing life of family, a continuing life of what Eleanor Roosevelt uh, mostly called duty um, and, and having to sort of live the life of a, a, a political partner uh, without having any sort of interest in being in that life and, as you say, cre- trying to create one for herself. Yes. Uh, in the early days, as, as, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt changed tremendously over her lifetime. And when she started out, at, you know, she was only 20 when she married mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt. And in those early days, uh, she did her duty, and she had all those children, one after the other. And she pretty much was uh, ruled by her mother-in-law, her very powerful mother-in-law, uh, and then um, things began to change around World War One when she began to volunteer and sort of realized she might be able to have a life of her own. And then in 1918, she discovered that Franklin ha- was having an affair with her secretary, a woman named Lucy Mercer. And at that point, things really changed because um, she, they, she considered divorce, and uh, d- they decided together that that would be a political disaster in those days you, mm-hmm. you, your your career as a politician would be over if you were divorced so they decided to stick together but she increasingly sought out her own separate circle of friends and her own pursued her own interests mm-hmm. uh, and so and then come 1932 and having to be mrs r again and have this ceremonial role and go back to washington which was the scene of the affair and all these memories uh, was definitely not what she wanted to do, and it was making her pretty unhappy. And that was when she met Hick, and Hick figured this out about her. Hmm. And that was the beginning of their close understanding of each other. And you do say that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had already created a kind of uh, life for herself with friends in, in New York, in the, in the area, um, mm-hmm. w- which were already uh, sort of political, democratic political women in some sense, but also a group of independent women, who, and many of whom were, were lesbians, correct? Yes, yes. It was a, a circle of radical women uh, who were political women, who kind of centered in Greenwich Village, and uh, she became part of that part of that whole world, and uh, that was that was what she didn't want to leave. Mm. So let's uh, um, we'll we'll take a actually let's let's take a break right now. Um, so uh, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about Hick and, and and writing letters to each other. One of the key parts of the book for me was just how often and how how much of this book takes place in letters also. And I think that's a key issue and obviously an interesting point for a historian, someone who does documentary research, trying to understand what what is a letter and what can it mean and how can it be true or not or a performance, things of that nature. So, uh, it's, uh, so like I said, we'll take a break. Our music is Autumn in New York, composed by Vernon Duke in 1934. And this is Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Our show is Eleanor in Love and Politics, about the first lady of the world, Eleanor Roosevelt, and her intricate love life and her first true love, Lorena Hickok. Stay with us for more on Interchange. They're making me feel 
Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun, Creole, and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening. Also featuring a full bar, serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the-uptown.com. It's autumn in New York. It's good to live it again. New York. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Eleanor in Love and Politics. My guest for our first half hour is Susan Quinn, author of Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. Uh, Susan Quinn is with us uh, by telephone, stranded in Phoenix on the way back home to Massachusetts with the storm that's hitting the East Coast right now. Uh, The love affair that shaped a first lady was with Lorena Hickok, a hardworking, uh, and uh, Susan, perhaps we'd even call her a, a lower class um, uh, journal, not that she was a lower-class journalist, but a journalist uh, with the past that uh, didn't match up at all to Eleanor Roosevelt's. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, such different backgrounds uh, and uh, very different styles. Hick was very emotional, you know, bombastic and and uh, full of feeling about things, and Eleanor was too, but, you know, it was all very subdued. So they were an unlikely couple, but they did share, even though they came from really different backgrounds, they did share having pretty, un- very unhappy childhoods. Eleanor lost her mother when she was eight, and, and her mother had pretty much told her she would never succeed in society because she was so plain. And then her father, whom she really adored and who adored her, died of alcoholism when she was 10. Mm. So she was raised by a grandmother and lived a very lonely childhood in a great big mansion on the Hudson River with her Victorian grandmother and her French governess, whom she hated. And so um, in, in both in very, very different ways, they had these hard, hard uh, struggles. And Hick, as you say, was definitely uh, uh, working class. And, and one of the interesting things was the way that they helped each other with some of their some of some of their limitations. I mean, Hick had never been around African Americans. You know, she'd had this childhood in South Dakota and the, mid, the very white Midwest. And then she 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 became a reporter for the for the uh, Roosevelt administration, going around the country and reporting on conditions and reporting on conditions in the South. And in the beginning, she seemed to share some of the prejudices of uh, of um, Southerners, or she picked up some of the attitudes of people about about blacks being inferior. And and Eleanor. Um, Educated her really, and and they they met together in the South, and and they read um, books together about uh, slavery, and um, and then her attitude really changed, and and that was an example of how Eleanor helped her, and, and they they really helped each other in a lot of ways because Hick figured out ways to help Eleanor with becoming a very different kind of first lady. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's do uh, look a little bit, if you don't mind, at um, at what you're just talking about with Hick going around the country as well. This is uh, obviously um, part of her work uh, is important, and I think uh, that's a nice 
aspect of this book is that you you kind of rescue uh, Lorena Hickok and the work she did uh, from history's uh, dustbin, I suppose. There's, there, there are a few books out there, I'm sure, on uh, Lorena Hickok's work, but not so much that actually show what she had been doing and, and mm-hmm. you know, highlight the kind of writer she was. Yeah. Well, that, that, I'm glad you say that because uh, that was an important goal for me. I really, I really think Lorena Hickok is, is quite a remarkable person. Her writing was wonderful, very, very vivid. And um, and uh, she had a lot of, because of her background. Partly, she just had tremendous empathy for people who were struggling. So she writes back these reports about you know from from the Dakotas, for instance. She goes there in the winter and she describes families that literally don't have enough clothing to cover themselves and protect themselves from the winter, and children with bare feet and and and, and not having enough bedding, you know. And she writes these these letters back. She writes them back to. Harry Hopkins, who is the head of WPA, but she also writes the same letters back to Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor is her connection to FDR and to getting things done. And Eleanor, because of the way she is, uh, also very sympathetic and eager to change things, is the one who can often make changes. And so you, you see the two of them working together on these things. And, and, and Hick is just so good at evoking with her with the detail the vivid details evoking situations of people who are struggling in poverty everywhere in and of course this is the height of the depression mm-hmm. so she visits uh these coal mining families in west virginia for instance and who are living in tents mm-hmm. and uh just shocking conditions um all over and does it so well so that that's an important uh, part of Part of the relationship that the lot was a love relationship, and you mentioned letters, and of course, that's kind of very central because they they were apart a lot, and right. and Hick wrote these letters. Well, they both they wrote every day, and so the letters were an important resource right. in terms of of doing the book. And uh, letters, as you mentioned, are a wonderful resource, uh, complicated but. But a very good research <laughs> right. tool. Well, let's uh, let's uh, st- uh, halt there a little bit and and talk a little bit about the letters and in uh, excuse me the the sort of uh, policy uh, decisions or policy influence that that uh, Lorena might have had uh, through Eleanor Roosevelt on Franklin Roosevelt as well. Uh, so I know we don't have to go into much detail, but I want to mention it here again. It's one of those things that uh, I had no idea about, and uh, but seems fascinating to me, and is very little. Um, uh, studied, as far as I can tell, I, I tried to do a, a fair amount of, of searching for for information on this, but it's the Arthur Dale project. Uh, that it seems like these this was a, a very serious and major project of Eleanor Roosevelt's that were that she and Hick kind of uh, worked on together and kind of instigated. Yes, yeah, um, that was one of the first places Hick went was to these coal mining communities in in uh, Scotts Run, West Virginia. And um, uh, Eleanor, because when she heard about what was going on there, the situation there, got, believe it or not, got in her car her, uh, and drove down to, uh, to West Virginia to see for herself. And she and Hicks toured these coal mining um, villages um, and, and observed the conditions there, which were very harsh. And they were, people were living in... Um, with very unsanitary water and in really in coal mining shacks, and um, out of that there had 
there was sort of a utopian dream which Eleanor had talked about before, but she and Hick really developed the idea of um, of, of, do, of actually building a planned community not far from from Scott's Run in West Virginia. It was called Arthurdale, and it was a whole grouping of houses, a little town really, which the federal government built. And these were modest houses, but they had indoor plumbing and uh, heat, um, and they had small garden. Each one had enough land so that the family moving there could have a, a, a garden, a kitchen garden, even a few animals. And this was the first planned community that was done by the Roosevelt administration, but it was one after that and really out, grew out of that were these planned communities, several hundred of them that housed thousands of people in new housing. And this happened, um, it was very controversial, but this happened during the Roosevelt administration. And it was for the families who moved to these places, it was, uh, as one said, it was like going to heaven. Yeah. So this is one of the things that grew out of this partnership between uh, Lorena Hickok and mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, it's something that I, uh, I, I, it's, I, I hesitate to promise it, but it's an interest of mine. It's, it's, it's captured my interest, and, and I'm going to try and do some more research on it. It sounds fascinating. Um, and the idea of the utopian community is also an interesting one, I, and it's one of the, the few... Uh, other books besides Moby Dick I've read is Middlemarch, and it reminded me of Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch. You know, she has this idea as well yeah. to, to build a That's utopian right. community. That's right. I, I, I hadn't made that connection. And it is a fascinating subject, um, and uh, those planned communities, and not enough has been done, so I hope you do pursue it. I'd say it, I'm, I'm going to put it on my list. So that's that's what we're going to do. We're going to do an Arthur an Arthur Dale interchange. It's it's going to be in the future. Um, so let's look at letters uh, quickly before we we run out of time. It's gone so so fast. I know, uh, but letters are uh, something I think a lot of us are have uh, maybe have trouble understanding how how love affairs and um, emotions and. Uh, things of this nature happen during in, in a kind of epistolary way, right? We we are uh, we are maybe fuller in our letters than we can be in person. We take on a particular personality as well, and we can we can say things that we might be embarrassed to even say in in person with people, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and we can flower or in even letters in, in, in email. Yeah, right. Even in email, I got to say we have the we have the I think a, a specious idea that we have so much written writing going on right now, but it's not not even close to the same as sitting down with your pen and paper and writing a letter. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a kind of tranquility, and there's also the, the the knowledge that when you sit down to write a letter, the person isn't going to read it immediately. You know, they're going to read it a couple of days later. And that changes the way you communicate. You know, it, so that there's a, it's much more for, it seems ironic, because it's it's easier to email, you know, you can just <laughs> right. type real fast, but in a funny way, um, letters, I think you take more time yeah. uh, with them. You a know? little more self-reflective. Yeah. So, uh, and again, I know I know we're running close. Uh, we're running close uh, to the end of time, and I wanted to get this in, and and I would encourage people to to go find the book. It's uh, there's so much in it to interest you, uh, but uh, I did want to point out or try to have you talk as briefly as possible about uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's other loves. Obviously, there besides women, and there are, there are many women you detail as well. Women who shaped her also from from school days forward, uh, and partnerships as long as as well as business business partnerships. 
partnerships that shaped her, but also uh, male male loves as well. And in some sense, replacements uh, for her children, it seems like, uh, better children for her maybe, uh, or better younger husbands as well in some sense, uh, Joe Lash and David uh, Gurevich in particular. Yeah, it's a fascinating aspect of Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, you know, the one, the one who was kind of a fun replacement was named Joe Lash, and he was a, a young radical, very passionate uh, leftist uh, who was a- anti-war in the years leading up to World War II, um, and um, actually was a communist for a while, and then uh, left disillusioned with that, but remained uh, very much of an activist. And she was very attracted to him and to the young people around him. And uh, she said, even at one point, that uh, she uh, that she wished her sons could be more like him in terms of being political. And the sons, of course, weren't political, and they were kind of they had a lot of they did a lot of drinking, and they had a lot of different marriages. And you know, it was uh, it, they didn't, for the most part, do so well. But they, she loved this Joe Lash for. But she, she and then she loved David Gravich, who was this Russian-born. Um, uh, Swiss, Swiss American doctor, a very charming younger man once again, and she did say he was the love of her life. But he was married to someone else and mm-hmm. to a younger woman. And in each of these instances, with Joe Lash too, she was in love with these people. But they they were in love with her in some way. But they were also in love with someone else, someone more closer to their age and more kind of likely. So, except in the case of Lorena Hickok, her relationships tended to be triangles. And, um, you know, I think it's a fascinating aspect of, of, of Eleanor and maybe of her. She was a great woman in many, many ways, but I think emotionally um, there were some limitations to what she could risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think maybe with Hick, maybe because she was a woman, she could risk more uh, for a while and during that intense period. And then it, that also became kind of overwhelming for her. I mean, Hick would have gone on forever, would have loved their relationship to last for a lifetime, but it didn't. And then there were these other loves. Mm -hmm. Um, Hick pressed her pretty hard uh, to be her only love. Yes, she did. And then there was a point at which she pressed so hard that she risked really ending the friendship, Mm -hmm. I think. And then she kind of, to her credit, she figured out, you know, that she was going to have to tone it down, her jealousy, her possessiveness, if she was going to keep Eleanor Roosevelt in her life, and she did. And so they they remained friends and forever until Eleanor died and continued to exchange letters and to care about each other uh, until until Eleanor died in 1962. Mm. Well, and Hick went on uh, and continued to write as well. Yes, she did. Uh, she did, but she struggled. She didn't really succeed in making a living after mm. she left the White House. She lived in the White House for the whole time of the Roosevelt presidency. <laughs> another another fascinating she, aspect. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then she went off on her own to live in Long Island, um, had some other flirtations, but nothing really, nothing could equal the relationship mm-hmm. with Eleanor. So she was a loner. She was alone with her dogs, and she was trying to make a living as a freelance writer, which is, I can tell you, not a good way to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, things went from bad to worse, and she got so she couldn't pay the rent, at which point Eleanor really sent her chauffeur to rescue her mm. and bring her back to Valkyl, where Eleanor lived in Hyde Park, New York. And she lived the rest of her life in Hyde Park, New York, um, with, with some independence, living apart and making something of a living, writing young adult books. Uh, but 
compared with Eleanor's tremendous success and uh, her becoming, as you mentioned, first lady of the world by mm-hmm. the time she died, Hick lived a much smaller life with with small triumphs along the way. Right. Well, uh, I did I did want to throw out the number that I think you you mentioned that there are well over three thousand letters. Yes, yeah. over three thousand, and those are the ones that that Hick didn't throw in the fire. All right, that's right. right, that's right yeah. Well, uh, I think the capsule review of your book in the New Yorker said it well that uh, the abiding the abiding impression of this book is the intricacy of Roosevelt's intimate life, and I'd second that. Far from saying this is the key uh, to it all, your book says as much as anything, this is a human life, and it is, like all of them, messy or intricate. Um, thank you, Susan Quinn. I know it was short. I apologize. Thanks for joining to talk, uh, joining us to talk about a very personal side to a very political life, Eleanor Roosevelt in love. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Doug. Uh, again, Susan Quinn is the author of Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady, uh, uh, out from Penguin Press last September. Uh, we have to take uh, a short break, a quick housekeeping break. When we'll return, we'll be joined by historian Jay Marcellus, and we'll look at Eleanor in politics with a special focus on her 1933 book, It's Up to the Women. Stay with us on WFHB. o'clock in the evening, and this is WFHB, Bloomington, Indiana. Listener-supported, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville, Community Radio for South Central Indiana, online at WFHB.org. Current temperature is 29 degrees. Tonight, expect a low overnight of 18 degrees. Sunny skies expected tomorrow, a high of 34 Low overnight for Wednesday of 18. Thursday, sunshine continues. Temperatures getting a bit warmer, 46 for the high. During the day, overnight lows of 33 degrees. Stay tuned.
Gotta be honest, I love that song, Johnny Diani, Blame It on the Boars. Uh, welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Eleanor in Love and Politics. The Eleanor is, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt. In our first segment, we talked with author Susan Quinn about her new book, Eleanor and Hick, which shines a light on Roosevelt's very deep and long-standing relationship with journalist and author Lorena Hickok. For this second half of our show, Eleanor in Politics, we're joined via Skype by Jane Marcellus, professor and historian at Middle, t- excuse me, Middle Tennessee State University. She's the author of Business Girls and Two Job Wives, Emerging Media Stereotypes of Employed Women, and co-author of Mad Men and Working Women, Feminist Perspectives on Historical <laughs> Power, Resistance, and Otherness, which was named to Teen Vogue magazine's most epic feminist reading list ever in 2015. And if, uh, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it out there or not, but Teen Vogue has become a very strong journalistic voice for the generation that's going to have to work with this mess of a world we're living in. Uh, Welcome to Interchange, Jay Marcellus. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, you've written a piece in Feminist Media Studies exploring the 1932 propaganda campaign or public relations campaign of Edward Bernays and Roosevelt's first book, Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, first book, both of which use the title It's Up to the Women, which you suggest must have been an intentional choice by Eleanor Roosevelt. But before we get to that, can you maybe give us a brief history lesson about the period and the public relations campaign that was leading up to the presidential election? Sure. So the time was 1932. Um, FDR was elected in that year, later in the year. And I think there was a confluence, kind of a perfect storm of events that that kind of made a space for this PR campaign in Ladies Home Journal. Um, women had gotten the vote, of course, in 1920. They had been going into the workplace. They wanted more independence. Um, in popular culture, there was sort of the image of the flapper, scandalous things like cutting your hair and showing your ankles like that. But women were very serious about, you know, making another a place for themselves in the world where they were not only politically independent, but economically independent. So they were going into the workplace. And that became very controversial in the late 20s. And then when the Depression hit in 1929, there was an idea that if women would just go home and get out of the workplace, there would be plenty of jobs for men and the Depression would magically be over. Mm-hmm. And of course, this was wrongheaded. Um, but, um, you know, that was that was kind of one idea that was out there quite a lot. And so... Um, and so the kind of I think what was going on a lot was the idea of what is women's place? Where do women fit in the kind of spectrum of um, the economy and home versus workplace, which was set up as kind of oppositional as a binary? And then what do we do with this mess of an economy? I mean, the, it was it was horrible. And 1932 was, I think, arguably the worst year of the Depression. Mm. Uh, or so far. And so Ladies Home Journal, meanwhile, was going through its own little crisis where it had was the sort of stodgy Victorian magazine for ladies. And for a long time, it had had this very stodgy Victorian sort of editor 
Edward Bach, who died in 1919, he didn't even like women's clubs. I mean, he didn't want women to do anything. And then he died in 1919, and the 20s came, and the magazine was kind of trying to repurpose itself. Like, what do what what are we? What is our voice? Um, in a way, like Teen Vogue, you know, mm-hmm. trying to find a new voice. And so they went through a succession of editors, several of whom were fired. And along comes a man named Loring Schuler, who was editor in 1932. He was trying to hang on to his job. He thought, well, if Ladies Home Journal can somehow get women to end the depression, then that'll preserve his own job, obviously, make a make a new place for the Ladies Home Journal. He got in touch with Edward Bernays, who was, um, I don't know if people know Edward Bernays. He was kind of the father of public relations, uh, he's so-called. He was a nephew of Sigmund Freud. He was a very flamboyant sort of character. He was, his nickname was Big Think. And um, he was, he loved his uncle's, Uncle Siggy, he called Freud, um, loved Uncle Siggy's ideas for ways to kind of, um, you know, he, he had very good intentions, kind of ways to um, use psychology to get, to persuade people to take certain actions to make the world better. So he cooked up this idea. He and his wife, Doris Fleischman, who was a feminist, who had her own name, um, who was the first woman to have her own passport in her own name. Hmm. Really interesting couple. Um, they had these sort of late night dinner parties hobnobbing with people like Harvard psychologists and, or um, I'm sorry, economists. And so they cooked this idea of it's up to the women. So if women would just, you know, move the economy along by buying more things, then manufacturers could make more things, they could hire more people, and the money could get be moving. So the problem with the depression was the money didn't move, mm-hmm. prices had bottomed out, and the money wasn't moving. So if women will just get out of the workplace, stop being laborers and go be consumers, then this will happen. So it was a new sort of job for women. Mm-hmm. Well, not only to, were they laborers, they were savers. Absolutely. Well, they had been savers, right, but right. they were traditionally savers. And I think that's something that Eleanor Roosevelt talks about in her book, was the sort of old economy. You know, our foremothers, they they got us through hard times by saving, by thrift, by by knowing how to pinch a penny. But the so ladies, some journalists coming along saying, no, go spend money, go buy a new house. And if you can't buy a house, fix up your house. And, right. and, and so like that. So um, it all came together in this public relations campaign, which went on. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It dominated Ladies Home Journal for 1932. Everybody knew about it. Um, the artwork for the February cover was in the Macy's window, um, store window in New York. And so that cover is a woman, kind of a white middle-class woman, going out shopping, she's wearing a hat, and she's dragging along Uncle Sam, who's kind of this reluctant husband. And so that was the dominant image, was that women were supposed to go shopping, mm-hmm. and everything would be better. Well, tell us a little bit, too, about the campaign itself. I think there's a point in your um, in your piece where you say that it's plausible that uh, FDR's most famous line uh, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, that that line it uh, pl- uh, plausibly came out of Ladies Home Journal. 
It did, which I think is fascinating. It's circumstantial evidence, but in one of Loring Schuler's editorials, in his in his first or second editorial, he he makes a very similar statement that the only thing we have to fear is fear. And he doesn't say it quite as eloquently mm-hmm. as as FDR did, but there's circumstantial evidence um, that you know Eleanor was widely read and that she often read FDR's speeches and gave him you know kind of chimed in on on that, and that she had even read the um, the, the the inaugural address, mm-hmm. his first inaugural, um, the night before he gave it, right. and. You know, so it's really circumstantial evidence. But Eleanor definitely knew about the campaign. She had actually contributed to the PR campaign by writing a short piece in one of the um, one of the magazines when they had a they called it a symposium mm-hmm. of women who could chime in. And yeah, she talk wrote a little bit about those. that. There's a symposium, but there's also one of economists too, where they're, they're they're trying to get people on board with almost like blurbing that this is the right kind of program for the world uh, shopping. Absolutely. So. What I did to write this article is I I went to the Library of Congress and looked at Bernays' papers, which was great fun. Um, And I spent all this time, and it was a winter, kind of like winter right now in Washington. (laughs) And and so the way he did his PR campaign, he sent out letters to economists, and he invited them to be in this sort of, um, you know, this group that was endorsing this idea. And he said, you know, all you really have to do is just let me use your name on letterhead. And some of them went along with it. You know, enough of them went along with it. So he had this group of economists who he he could claim were endorsing it. They really weren't endorsing it. They just kind of said okay to Edward Bernays. <laughs> and 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 some of them. Um, some of them really objected, and mm-hmm. then some of them tried to get out of it because other economists were making fun of them. So, but he had enough of them. Then he could, so then he could build up this idea that okay, well, these leading economists say that the, the women should be doing this, and then he sent out a lot of letters to women's club presidents because that's how you reached women at the time, and um, had them, you know, kind of pass along the idea of this campaign. He had brochures. And he asked the, the women's club editors to write back on the back of the letter and send, you know, send back an endorsement. Then he could claim that women were behind this, too. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what is wonderful about going to look at these letters in Bernays' papers is that a lot of women did not think it was wonderful. They <laughs> thought, you know, they were like, they're like, what are you talking about? We don't have money. You know, and they would say very practical things like, well, you know, the price of eggs, we can get half of what we could get for eggs because, you know, that was and and the price of corn is down. And and so we don't have money. My favorite was a woman who said she was living in Connecticut and she said, you know, we need money for we have a child who has special needs and who needs to go to school and we have to pay for that. And they didn't have money. And so they rented out their house for the summer and the family went and moved to a tent and she said you know we saved money we got fresh air we got a better point of view we got lots of exercise and we got rent for our house that paid for our child's school yeah. and she said she said yeah it was up to me and 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 you know this is what's up to women right. and so i think eleanor really tapped into that sentiment in a brilliant way 
and in her book. And mm -hmm. so when you read the book in that light as a as a reaction to this PR campaign, um, then it takes on a whole new takes on a whole new meaning yeah you well, know, the book is right. it's much more interesting yeah well uh we'll get to that when we come back from a break this is uh, interchange on wfhb our music for the break is rosie the riveter the term rosie the riveter was first used in 1942 in a song of the same name written by red evans and john jacob loeb the song was recorded by numerous artists uh, but uh including and and made popular by the big band leader Kay kaiser uh so this is rosie the riveter uh, rosie is a tireless assembly line worker doing her helped to, excusing her, her part, pardon me, her part to help the American war effort. More with Jane Marcellus on the politics and propaganda of shopping as women's work when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stay with us. WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976, serving Cajun, Creole, and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the-uptown.com. Rosie, 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 the Riveter. On the assembly line. Welcome back to Interchange. That was Rosie the Riveter. Uh, again, that was um, written by Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb and performed by the big band uh, led by Kay Kaiser from 1942. I have Jane Marcellus with me in the studio. Um, I like that song quite a bit. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's part of the assembly line. She's making history, <laughs> working for victory. Rosie the Riveter keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage sitting up there on the fuselage. <laughs> <laughs> so the li And it does say at some point, that little girl will do more than a male will do. Um, again, this is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Eleanor in Love and Politics. In our first half, we spoke with author Susan Quinn about her new book, Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. And in our second half, we've turned to what might be seen as another pivotal moment for Eleanor Roosevelt, her burgeoning national political voice. Jane Marcellus, a professor at Middle Tennessee State University, is our guide today, and our specific focus illuminates the phrase, one resurgent with Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, It's Up to the Women. In 1932, under the direction of the so-called Father of Public Relations in the U.S., Edward Bernays. The Ladies' Home Journal promoted a patriotic shopping campaign which sought to narrow women's work to shopping or to domestic eco economics. In 1933, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote her first book using the same title, 
That's the propaganda campaign. It's up to the women. Before we went to uh, the break, Jane uh, Marcellus, she told us a story about a family who wrote, uh, a woman who wrote to Edward Bernays saying she didn't think the program for patriotic shopping was a great idea uh, because she didn't have any money. But what they did when they didn't have money was they rented out their house and lived in a tent, uh, I guess in the backyard maybe, I'm not sure. Um, but it struck me as um, resonant with the, uh, a thing that uh, I read in uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's book in chapter one. It says, uh, she says, it seems to me that we do not really give much thought to what we want out of life and the development of this thought is one of the things which we can get out of the present depression. And it seems like that, that story you told is, is pretty perfect for that. I think that's exactly true. I, I think that Eleanor was brilliant at tapping in to what women and probably people generally in the country were thinking and feeling, and that she said, you know, hey, wait a minute, what's up to the women? What are we talking about here? What I love about her book is the way she takes us back to, you know, through history. She talks about the pilgrims, you know, the first women coming over on the Mayflower and what did they face? And then women of the American Revolution and the Civil War and so forth. You know, that there have been hard times before and that women had to face that and that they they faced it through grit and through thinking about what to do, like that woman who did, who said, let's go live in the backyard in a tent. And, and that that's what's up to the women. And that she, I think she really deepened the conversation. Um, whereas to just say, oh, let's go shopping, you know, mm -hmm. like you're a Barbie doll, right. um, is kind of, is very trivial. Now you say it's, um, uh, it's important to note that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt at the time was no media novice. She wasn't coming to this first book without any clue about what was going on. I think she wasn't. I mean, FDR had been, you know, she had been in politics. FDR had been governor of, of New York. Um, she'd been first lady there. He was, um, you know, he was, he had other, other jobs. Um, she had um, a very fine education. She was a very smart person. Um, and so I think that's true. I mean, and she, and she also, um, you know, she had a sense of, how to look at a situation a little bit differently and make things better. So famously, when she started as first lady of the, of the US um, holding press conferences, she would only let female reporters come to her press conferences. Mm -hmm. And so that was brilliant. So all these women got jobs because every paper had to, if they wanted to cover the first lady's press conferences, they had to send a woman and if they didn't have a woman, they had to go hire one. So that was brilliant. Um, and um, was she also? Yes. I think it's an also a, a, an important point that at this, like it's it's where we're trying to understand women in the workplace stops uh, stops. I guess the idea of of. of of um, the feminine in some sense, right? So we put women in the workplace that they stop becoming feminine as been has had been defined in their role as domestic uh, uh, employment, I suppose. Right. So that goes back to really the 19th century idea of the, the cult of true womanhood, kind mm -hmm. of a mid-Victorian idea of piety, purity, 
domesticity and submission. So mm-hmm. this is a kind of Barbara Welters theory of, <laughs> of uh, what women were supposed to be. And that was very much white middle class women. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, the idea that if you're working, you're not feminine. And if you're not feminine, you're not. So to be a worker and to be a woman were opposite. Um, which is, you know, and thankfully, I tell my students this now, and they look at me like, what are you talking about? Which I, I think is great. Um, but, but that was definitely the idea. And so it was, it was pitting, it was pitting labor against femininity. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, and I think so what Eleanor does is she really problematizes that she says, mm-hmm. um, you know, she says it's really not that easy. And she says it, you know, in such a gentle voice. Um, and so you don't really get, um, and just you, you read her book very carefully, uh, you know, what she's saying. It's it's really very smart. She's saying something very necessary, I think, at that time. Well, what she also does is, as you say, she includes more women. Uh, the Ladies Home Journal uh, campaign constructs a world dominated by middle-class housewives, and you say uh, uh, Roosevelt includes poor women, farm women, and career women, and uh, refutes even the idea of materialism as a a way to success. Yes, she did. Uh, You know, and I think going back to that idea of thrift, one of the things that, that the PR campaign said is that it says somewhere in there that, you know, thrift is a vice. You right, know, it's right, very much, right. it's it's really kind of shocking what it says. An interesting thing about the PR campaign is in Brene's papers, in the sort of letters and memos that they were sending back, inter- you know, back and forth internally about who to include, it actually talks about including African-American women and women of different ethnic backgrounds, and that got cut out. Mm. So it's intru- that's really fascinating. And I, I think that may have been Doris Fleischman's influence. Mm. And um, you mentioned Doris Fleischman. Let's uh, talk a little bit about her. She does seem, uh, in your article, uh, to, to have been a very strong and important partner for, for Bernays in, in her own right, having uh, many of these, uh, these important ideas. She wrote a book in, in 1955 called A Wife is Many Women, uh, but she clearly has uh, understood the economic role of women as being extremely important as well. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, later in his life, Bernays lived to be, I think, 100 and 101 or something oh like gosh. that. Hmm. And um, and, Dor- and Doris only lived to be about 70. Hmm. But he, he acknowledged late in his life that she was actually um, that kind of theoretician behind a lot of his PR ideas. He was the man out front, he was flamboyant, but she was she was the thinker of the two of them, um, which is fascinating. Hmm. Um, she was early in her life, um, you know, a strong feminist, and I think she was always a strong feminist, but I think that um, she later took Brene's name. She went by Doris Fleischman Brene's by hmm. the 50s. Um, I think, you know, that kind of post-war backlash was maybe getting to her a little Mm. bit but um you know she definitely was it part of the conversation and part of the conversation probably in planning the pr campaign of you know do we have to have this binary between home and work Mm -hmm. i mean why why do why is that a binary Uh, which is a question we ask now i mean why is that this or that why can't they be sort of blended right so um 
that was definitely um, going on then as well. Well, it's a, another interesting point is that uh, you you remarked that Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, she's kind of, a, I don't know, maybe uh, um, uh, attempting to make capitalism uh, kinder and gentler in some sense, right? So it's up to the women to see they live within their incomes that they buy as fairly as possible from the fair merchants and buy only such goods as are manufactured by fair manufacturers, right? And she uh, urges women to avoid the evil of installment buying, you know, the evilest part of a capitalist debt system, right? Uh, um, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you didn't buy on credit. That right, was, right. you know, that was pretty shocking. Um, yeah, but I mean, don't we have that now? I mean, we have fair trade, right. you know, the idea of, of getting your coffee from fair trade, um, you know, pl- producers. So um, it was, I mean, I think she had kind of um, um, social and economic well-being could go hand in hand and was was her idea and that you didn't have to have all these things be opposite and you didn't have to have this extreme spending the the new deal did have a um it it also had a campaign that was aimed at getting people to spend and that was you know that was a real problem that people were not spending because they were hoarding money in jars and they Mm -hmm. were literally hoarding money in jars and because the banks weren't insured um, or hadn't been insured. And so uh, it was a scary time to spend money. And it took a great deal of faith and courage to spend money. But she was saying, you know, let's spend in a reasonable way. Let's spend what you need. And, and it, let's not just get lost in consumerism um, so that it just becomes our identity. Right. Well, which, it's important to note, too, with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt being uh, kind of the first lady of work in some sense, right? She turned herself into a working politician. She did. I mean, and she's a great role model for, you know, any first lady now, certainly. Um, she got out there and she saw what needed to be done and and she went and did it. Great. So there was, and there were, she, you know, she was ridiculed a bit at the time. I think it was one of the magazines, Time magazine maybe, said, you know, Eleanor everywhere, that, you know, she just turns up all over the place. Um, But she was indefatigable. I mean, she just had this great energy. And, of course, you know, things maybe weren't great at home. And so it, it, um, yeah. So, um, but she um, used her energy and her position for the greater good. Yep. Um, So... Good. Well, uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks to Susan Quinn, who joined us for our first segment about Eleanor's first and deepest love, Lorena Hickok. And thank you, Jane Marcellus, for guiding us through the politics of women's work in the Depression era. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. We'll close with music. Uh, well, this is, uh, I think, Hooray for Love. Uh, <laughs> I'm having to remember what I wrote down here. Uh, next time on Interchange, do you bite your thumb at us, sir? What is civil discourse and why do politicians and pundits uh, seem to resort to admonishment when discourse gets messy and less than civil? Also, what is civility in the first place and who gets to define it? We'll talk to two scholars, Aurelien Cretu and Teresa Bejan, both with new books that seek to center the meaning of civility in politics and religious discourse. Tolerance appears to be a resurgent watchword, but doesn't tolerance imply a kind of superiority and condescension for the tolerated? Biting Thumbs, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.
Once you get